Welcome back to the Joseph Cox Show. This episode is another Torah-focused podcast. Like last week, I'll structure it around five faces of Torah, the inspirational, the political, the trivial, the structural, and finally, my answers to standard questions. Let's start with the inspirational. Now, this episode is not quite the standard episode for a simple reason. My daughter Yaira's bat mitzvah was two weeks ago. I didn't speak about it then, and it's a bit embarrassing. The simple fact is that in the absence of synagogue services, we hadn't had our eye on her Hebrew birthday. We've been too busy planning the party she wants and will eventually get to properly mark her actual bat mitzvah. She remembered it about 20 minutes prior to candlelighting. She lit candles for the first time, and that was how we marked it. The fact remains, synagogue services or not, that my favorite part of a bat mitzvah, especially for my own daughter, is not the kiddush or the party. My favorite part is the last chance to pass on some fatherly advice in public and maybe have my child listen. So in the absence of a speech in synagogue, I'm going to make one here, and hopefully she'll listen. This speech will be about both the reading two weeks ago and this one. As you'll see, the delay may have been fortuitous. If you really want to get into the mood, wake up earlier than you want to, sit in a light, slightly uncomfortable chair for an hour and a half, and then groan quietly to yourself as I, the father of the bat mitzvah girl, gets up to speak. Sometimes the parallels between the Torah and our present day are extremely simple to draw. This is one of those occasions. The famine in the Yosef story is presented as an international catastrophe. It affects Canaan as aggressively as it affects Egypt. Despite its scale, Yosef's capable administration guides Egypt through the chaos. Today we are faced with an international catastrophe. As we compare notes in our various cultures and societies, no government resembles Yosef's more than that of China. Confidently, smoothly, Yosef brings the people through the famine and out to the other side. His administration must have been the envy of the ancient world. We admire his success even today. But this Torah reading reminds us that there is a dark side to it. A successful central planner always runs the risk of thinking too much of themselves of replacing dynamism with planning, of eliminating choice in favor of a scientifically controlled outcome, of creating harmony at the cost of humanity, and of forgetting that a crisis is just that, and the solutions for a crisis, which require single-mindedness, are not the solutions for the reality that follows, in which many goods compete. The results can be disastrous. I think Yosef meant well. Back in Parshat Miketz, my daughter's bat mitzvah parsha, Yosef saw a problem, he saw a solution, and he had a plan, a good plan, and he implemented it well. Unfortunately, that plan ultimately undermines both Egypt and the children of Yaakov. The Egyptians beg Yosef to buy them so long as they can stay alive. They become the property of Paro and are resettled at the whim of Yosef. They lose their lands and possessions and become legally enslaved sharecroppers. The Canaanites give up all their money to the Egyptian regime, and the children of Yaakov are taken care of. They're paid an allowance by the child, and in the process, they lose their will to run and their initiative. 
Clearly, they still shepherded their animals. They were still free, but that allowance, even if it was just enough to feed their children, kept them tied to Egypt. The entire time, Paro, the central administration of Egypt, became more and more powerful. What follows is almost inevitable. Everybody but Paro is enslaved, Egyptian and Jew alike. Paro himself forgets that he is not inherently ordained to have the power Yosef had granted him. That's what it means when the Torah says that he forgot Yosef. The Egyptian people, barely functioning, feared that the children of Israel will leave. That's why the text says that they enslave them. They're not afraid of rebellion. They're afraid the Jewish people will leave. The Egyptians have lost their own economic vitality, and the children of Israel, the only free people in Egypt aside from the priests, are providing it. Everybody is enthralled to the great central power of Paro. While the children of Israel are not initially slaves, they are also not paragons of freedom and self-determination. The Torah describes them as multiplying using the same word as is used for bugs. They are paid an allowance by the child, and so children are created. They multiply like bugs. And even in this, they lack initiative. They do not fill the land. Instead, the text says, the land filled itself with them. Even as they grow more numerous, and on paper, even as they grow stronger and stronger, they are passive and weak and easily enslaved. What is described as an economic and social catastrophe for the Egyptian and Jewish people alike, even before the slavery and the plagues. It all goes hand in hand with the growth of Paro's power. In today's world, we have the Chinese Communist Party in the place of Paro. The same people responsible for the suppression of information that let the virus flourish in Wuhan and delayed the world's response to it are riding high on their own belated but overwhelming reaction. Few Chinese have died. Their all-powerful government has used the catastrophe to justify and further cement their position. They represent the Yosef of the story. They represent the effectiveness of a central power in an all-consuming crisis and the weakness of such a power when the crisis is not their sole focus, as happened in Wuhan. Just like Yosef, they are protecting their own people while enslaving them. At the same time, they have ensnared the rest of the world just like the children of Yaakov were ensnared. Using their advantages in scale and cost, the Chinese Communist Party has induced the West to give up almost every bit of their intellectual property, all in the name of cheaper manufacturing and the false promise of equal access to a major market. Like the children of Yaakov, the world has bound itself into a trap, giving up their own edge and initiative in return for a small economic benefit, a benefit even now that they are unwilling to sacrifice, despite the increasingly obvious costs that benefit demands. Like a gradually cooked frog, we are only realizing our predicament when it is too late. Just as with the children of Yaakov, the West has increasingly given up its freedom and independence in return for a little money. As we emerge from this crisis, the process will almost certainly accelerate. The economic weakness of profligate Western governments that manage this virus poorly will be leveraged by an increasingly powerful Chinese state. Loans to Africa, 
that will be leveraged into power over raw materials will be mirrored by loans to the West that will guarantee there is no source of resistance to the great Chinese Communist Party project. The China dream is very real. With the coronavirus, a catastrophe risks being turned into a nightmare. And just as with Yosef, the Chinese people will themselves be among those suffering the most. So why would any of this matter for my daughter's bat mitzvah? The answer comes in this week's reading, which is why the delay is fortuitous. You see, Paro's rule is not without end. What seems unbreakable does in fact break. But the cracks that form in this seemingly unbreakable reality do not come from strong men. Even after the project of freedom begins, the men who lead the Jewish people demand that it stop. No, the cracks that form in this reality are formed by women. Women willing to break the rules and shatter the system that surrounds them. First, we have Shifra and Pua, who defy the order to kill all newborn boys. Second, we have Miriam, who encourages her parents to have another child, despite the horrors of the world. Third, we have Moshe's mother, who refuses to kill her child because she sees that he is good. Fifth, we have Zipporah, who rescues Moshe from his own reluctance. And rewinding back to fourth, we have Paro's daughter. The deaths of the Jewish boys should make sense to her. The power of her family is so deeply tied into her father's project that it should be obvious that her own interests demand that the Jewish people be suppressed. Her own interests should demand that the Jewish boys be killed. And yet she goes to the river, knowing that there are likely to be children there. She notices Moshe's floating cradle and she has it retrieved, knowing it is likely to contain a Hebrew child. She saves it, knowing that it is a Hebrew boy. When Miriam comes and offers a nursemaid, she accepts, knowing that in a world bereft of living baby boys, the Jewish nursemaid is most likely to be the boy's own mother. She even lets the child be raised until it is weaned in its mother's own house. Paro's daughter is an agent of chaos and a catalyst for freedom. Despite everything that should make sense to her, she does something different. Shifra, Pua, Miriam, and Yocheved resist, but they are protecting their own. Paro's daughter resists because it seems like she can't help but resist. She wasn't suffering, but her resistance is what opens the door to redemption. Yaira, you are an agent of chaos. We try to run a reasonable house, a rational house. We try to never lie to you. We always try to lay out our reasoning clearly. We try to lay out our case clearly so that you and all of the other kids will work with us simply because it makes sense. But ever since you were a little girl, whenever something made too much sense, you simply refused to comply. You went off on unbelievable tangents, precisely when the logic for doing so was weakest. I don't think you had any particular reason behind those decisions. Like Paro's daughter, you couldn't help but challenge the constraints of order, even at the cost of your own self-interest. Yaira, you are incredibly hardworking and diligent, as your cards project showed. 
Anybody listening can email me to discover what I'm talking about. But she made over 50 three-dimensional cards, and she sold them for 30 shekel each and gave all the money to Aylin Hospital. But the aspect that represents you more clearly than your diligence and hard work are your creativity and your humor, both of which are based on the central plank of your existence. You are an agent of chaos. Your humor is unexpected, and creativity must always be so. Yira, not only are you an agent of chaos, you live in a land of chaos. Israel is not the West, drowning in debt, childless, and sclerotic. Israel is not an authoritarian state threatening the freedom of the world. Israel, by the very virtue of her relative weakness, is willing to work with many other nations. The United States might be our greatest ally for now, but it is not hard to foresee a future in which connections to other states grow ever more important. Within our own borders, things happen haphazardly. Israelis don't plan very well. Nonetheless, they still happen. Israel punches far above her own weight. Israel is like you, creative, diligent, hardworking, and quite averse to a planned reality. I fear that as the world is transformed in the wake of the coronavirus, the freedom of humanity will be dependent on those willing to be agents of chaos, of those willing to do what is right, even when it makes no sense, especially when it makes no sense in the short term. It will depend on those willing to create cracks in an increasingly perfect and nightmarish global society. It will depend on the daughters of Pharaoh. It will be dependent on the likes of you. Women as a whole do not resist the actions of Pharaoh. Only a few do. None resist the program at its origin, at a time of Yosef himself. Asnat, Yosef's wife, did not undermine her husband's plan to parlay food into domination. Imagine the pain and death that could have been avoided if she had. Imagine if, unlike this Tevartora, the cracks in the system had been timely. But they weren't. No, Yaira, what you have is rare. Few, blessed with brains and beauty and the blessings we have given you, have the guts to challenge their own reality. But you do. I can honestly say that it hasn't been easy raising an agent of chaos, even as I've seen you gain more and more control over that chaos. Of course, the most important things are often the hardest to accomplish. And I, are, and I already know your mother and I are proud of whatever part we will have played in your eventual accomplishments. Ye'ira, may Hashem grant you a future of unending blessings. May you play your part in defying order and reason. May you use your powers for good. And may all of us be blessed by your example. We love you. Let's go on to the second section of this podcast, the political section. After that last bit, you probably couldn't imagine how I could get more political. Of course, I won't. The political section is more about ideology. There's a remarkable scene early in Moshe's story. Moshe comes to Midian and sits down by a well. Shortly afterwards, the seven daughters of Yitro, the priest of Midian, show up to water their flocks, and they are soon chased away by other shepherds. Moshe stands up and rescues them and then waters their flock. They go home and their father asks them how they managed to get home so quickly. They explain that an Egyptian man rescued them and helped them. He then asks why they didn't invite him home. We fast forward a bit and Moshe eventually marries one of the daughters. This story is the third in a series of matrimonial well stories. 
The stories show vast changes across times and societies. In a way, the well stories can be used as a barometer of the health of a society. In the first story, Eliezer comes to Avraham's family. Lavan is still a young man and hasn't yet poisoned his society. The Torah tells us that women draw water for the flocks. Rivka, Rebecca, is one of them. Rivka proceeds to water Eliezer's animals and then invites Eliezer to her home and actually brings him with her. In the next episode, the society has lost trust. There's a rock covering the well and all the shepherds must be there to lift it so no one cheats. Now instead of women watering the flock, there are men. Rachel is the only woman there. Yaakov rolls the stone off single-handedly and then waters Rachel's flock. Rachel then runs home to tell her father, and her father invites Yaakov home. Finally, we have Moshe's case. In Midian, the nation which draws the ire of Hashem in the book of Bamidbar and Numbers, the male shepherds actively chase the women away. It is apparently a regular occurrence. Their father asks why they get home so early. The shepherds don't just fail to trust each other, they are allied against the weak. In addition, all seven sisters come to the well together. They can't go alone. It wouldn't be safe. Moshe chases the shepherds away and waters the flock. The sisters head home, but they don't think to invite Moshe. After all, he's a strange man. He could be dangerous. We have three progressions here. Women go from exclusively drawing water and watering flocks to being chased away when they try to draw water. Women go from being able to go to the well alone to needing to travel in groups for safety. And women go from being willing and able to invite a foreign man home to not even thinking of the possibility. The picture that is being painted is of a world in which women are being squeezed out of a core part of economic life and fear for their safety in public. The two go hand in hand. Later, Zipporah shows herself to be no shrinking violet. She's one of Yitro's daughters, Moshe's wife. But that is later. Perhaps Moshe, raised by a strong and independent woman, Paro's daughter, brings out this characteristic in his own wife. All in all, I think the Torah is showing us healthy and unhealthy societies. It is showing us that a healthy society is one in which women are not locked away and do not live in fear. Interestingly, almost all the great men in Torah are shepherds, from Avraham to David, but at least in this early period, many of the great women also start as shepherds, including Rivka, Rachel, and Zipporah. The wives of Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Moshe were not the women who stayed at home. On to the trivia. Number one, when Pharaoh asks the midwives why they can't kill the Jewish boys, the midwives explain the Jewish women are like chayot, or wild animals. Rashi explains that this meant they were experts and didn't need a midwife's help. There's an interesting mathematical bit that can explain this. Later, when counting the firstborn boys, the Torah says there are 22,273 of them. 22,273 in a nation of 600,000 men. This would suggest roughly 30 male children for each woman. The standard response to this is, is to suggest that there were 30 male children for each woman. Of course, that doesn't work. Not just because of the uh, tremendous strain it would cause, but because if the whole nation had 30 children per woman, then the whole nation would have numbered only 22,273 men, roughly, in the prior generation. In other words, when the Torah describes the Jewish people as being incredibly numerous and filling the land, would have only been fewer than twenty-five or 50,000 of them. That doesn't add up. 
There is another answer. That answer is that the women gave birth to girls first. With this, the number of firstborn males might only include those born after the exodus. In addition, when it came time to deliver boys, the women would already have been experts. They wouldn't have needed the midwives. Number two. Moshe is consistently identified as an Egyptian. Like Avraham and Yosef, he crossed cultures. This ability to move across cultures is critical, not only to connecting with others, not only to connecting to other societies, but to changing your own. Number three, Moshe is given three miracles to display his bona fides. These miracles, through their symbolism, show the story of the Exodus in advance. Nahoshet, Copper is the practical metal of the Bible. It's called the Bronze Age for a reason. The Nachash, or snake, has the same root. The Nachash is the tool of God. When Moshe's staff turns into a Nachash, a snake, the symbolism is that the staff of Moshe is the tool of Hashem. Moshe's role is to represent Hashem, to act as Hashem during the Exodus. If the people don't go for that, there's a second miracle, Sarat, the biblical skin condition. It would have no meaning for the people, not yet. As an entirely unknown disease, it would show that Moshe's actions, signified by his hand, are impacted by a new kind of power. Later, Tzarat will come to signify a divine response to excessive human conceit. This miracle shows, that the role, uh, shows the role of Hashem in the Exodus. It combines I will be what I will be, the ultimate self-determination that God alone has, with the blunting of human pride. The third sign is to take the water of the river and pour it on the land where it will become blood. The blood of the river is the lifeblood of Egypt. Moshe spills it onto the ground like the blood of a murdered man, and it shows the role of Egypt in the upcoming story. These three miracles show us what will happen with Moshe, God, and Egypt. Trivia number four. Moshe turns aside to the bush precisely because it burns and is not consumed. It is not only unnatural, it is unnatural in a very specific way. It shows the possibility of creation without destruction. It is a beautiful and intriguing image. In our world, creation always requires destruction. Only Hashem can create without destroying. Ultimately, so much of biblical symbolism is tied into this idea of creation without destruction. It starts with the menorah, with branches and knobs and blossoms. The menorah burns but is never consumed. The menorah represents the burning bush, the sneh, and both captures the essence of what our people are meant to represent in this world and what is uniquely divine about Hashem. Number five, we know from the text that the menorah represents an almond. Wild almonds produce cyanide. Approaching a burning one was probably incredibly risky. Moshe's drive to understand the divine overwhelmed his practical fears. And number six, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, and Yehuda all grow as people. They all learn some new characteristic. As I read it, Moshe's very first act is an act of protection, but unlike his predecessors, he never changes. He never augments that core. Moshe defies Hashem himself in his protection of his people. Final section is structural. Going to that, what is this Parsha? How does it fit into the overall structure of the Torah and the overall storyline that's being set up? So, even after meeting Hashem, Moshe does not rush to Egypt. When he finally does go to Egypt, Hashem leaves him with one final message. Moshe is to tell Pharaoh that Israel is the firstborn son of Hashem. And because that son has not been freed, Pharaoh's firstborn will be killed. 
It seems like an odd illusion. But it ties the slavery in the beginning of the Exodus beautifully into the book of Breshit. Prior to the flood, we see the decline of society. The sons of Lamech capture the essence of this decline. Lamech had three sons with names related to acquisition. These sons acquire wealth, but there is a suggestion that they do not create it. There's Yaval, whose name means acquisition, who acquires and separates from mankind to do it. He's a, he's a cowboy. There's Yuval, whose name means passive acquisition, who acquires passively through the entertainment industry. There's a suggestion of the sex trade as well. He's Las Vegas. And then there is Tuvalkain, whose name suggests aggressive acquisition. He makes his money through the arms business. Soon enough, the world has declined, and men of fame and glory take whatever women they please. The seeking of fame is a zero-sum game. To earn it, others must lose it. These men, these great, famous, glorious men, are called the B'nai Elohim. The word Elohim is used to describe God, but the word actually comes from the same origin as Allah. It means power. Judges are thus called Elohim later in the Torah, human judges. The sons of Elohim are the sons of the powerful. They didn't even acquire their power for themselves. It was handed to them by their fathers. They're entitled to it, as they see it. Well, look at this reading. Who has had more power handed to him than any person in history? It would be Paro, enabled by Yosef. He is one of the B'nai Elohim. But Hashem is telling him that the Jewish people are the true B'nai Elohim. The connection is actually far stronger than that. In Lech Lecha, Hashem famously promises Avraham that his descendants will be exiled for four generations. But he doesn't say where they will be exiled to. An earlier Paro makes that decision for him. Quote, And it came to pass when Avraham was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, and she was very fair. And the princes of Pharaoh saw her and praised her to Paro, and the woman was taken to Paro's house. And the Lord plagued Paro and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. That Paro acted exactly like one of the sons of Elohim. He saw a woman he wanted and took her. Yes, he paid Avraham. But there was no consent. Not only that, but God brought plagues on Paro's house, and the text never says that he lifted them. What we have, then, is the story of slavery actually closing out lessons lingering from the book of Breshit from Genesis. Those who are full of pride will be brought low. The sons of Elohim, who take whatever women they want, will be taught their place, and the world will learn as well. There is one more critical thread. In that same parsha of Lechacha, Avraham has promised many descendants, and he believes. But then he has promised the land, and he asks Hashem, How can I know? How can I believe? How can I know that this is what will happen? There are reasons for Avraham's doubt, and tremendous symbolism in how Hashem responds. I can share that when we circle back to that reading, but the core message is that Avraham has doubt. And because of that doubt, Avraham's descendants will be enslaved and then Hashem will rescue them. In all of human history, up until the Haitian Revolt, a people has never freed itself from slavery. We've read about the Great Slave Revolts, but they all eventually fizzle out. Humans can't rescue themselves from slavery. The message to the Jewish people is the same as the message to Pharaoh. We are limited in our power. Hashem is all-powerful. And we should trust in him, just as the B'nai Elohim should fear him.
Mozart's core characteristic is that he stands up for the weak. We see from the very first action he takes, if we, the Jewish people, are to stand against the sons of Elohim, against the sons of the powerful who oppress the powerless, we must recognize that our own children are the children of another Elohim, the Elohim, Hashem, the unification of all the higher powers of our world. Okay, now standard questions. Number one, what's up? With Zipporah declaring that Hashem, sorry, with Zipporah declaring that Moshe is the bridegroom of blood. Let's revisit the story. Hashem visits a reluctant Moshe along the way to Egypt. He intends to kill him. Why? Because Moshe's son isn't circumcised. Circumcision symbolizes that our reproductive will, the most fundamental will of any animal, is not simply biological. Instead, we are dedicating our reproductive capability or the reproductive capability of our sons to continuing the relationship with God. I'll go into the symbolism more in the appropriate parsha. By not circumcising his son, Moshe hasn't committed his own children to the divine relationship. His own son won't be a son of Elohim. Moshe, who's always had some of Egypt in him, seems to be hedging his bets. As Moshe is unwilling to commit his own progeny to the divine mission, he's unworthy of leadership. And without leadership, he has no purpose and no point in living. It is Moshe's wife, Zipporah, who doesn't hedge. Moshe is dying. With her connection to God fading, she circumcises her son, connecting him to the children of Israel. She casts the foreskin at Moshe's feet and calls him a bridegroom of bloods. Bloods, in plural, signifies blood outside the body. It signifies death. She has married one who is dead. But because of this action, Hashem releases Moshe. Zipporah then declares that Moshe is the bridegroom of blood with the circumcision. Moshe is her husband of bloods, but not the blood spilt through death, but the blood spilt through circumcision and connection to Hashem. He is her connection to the divine covenant. No death is required, only a dedication of future generations to Hashem as members of the Jewish people. Number two, how can the Egyptians suffer as they do? They aren't really guilty after all. The answer comes from back to Yosef. He robbed them of their humanity when he robbed them of their will. And by being lowered, they can be used to make an example. Number three, why is Moshe so reluctant to do God's bidding? I can explain this by looking at a more contemporary example. Imagine if Hashem came to you as a German Jew and said, I'm going to make an example of Germany. I'm going to raise up the strongest single man in history. Sorry, I almost said Hitlery. He's going to enslave my people and commit genocide against them. I will then free my people and lead them back to the land I promised them. But along the way, millions will die. Not only six million Jews, but six million Germans. Would you be excited about this plan, or would you resist? Moshe resists. I believe Hashem seeks out those who will resist, those who can't understand the godly, the divine perspective. After all, Hashem calls and Aaron comes running. There's no drama. But Aaron is not chosen as the leader of the Jewish people. I think I'm going to start concluding these podcasts in a standard way. First, I'm sharing these podcasts because I want to help people realize their full potential. Whether that potential is creative, holy, or a combination of the two, it is a pity when potential goes to waste. So that's my goal. And I think it's closely tied to the core concept of Judaism. We want to create without destroying, just like the burning bush. We don't want to waste anything. So I want to help people do more with their own lives. 
So if you found that these ideas help you in either of these pursuits of being creative or holy, then share them. You don't have to share them in my name. Go ahead and steal them, change them, make them your own, and carry them forward. Finally, I've made one of my books, I put one of my books up free of charge on my website, josephcox.com. Just look for The Hidden Agent. The Hidden Agent is a thriller about the nature of blessing and curse. The book is free because it has no place in today's commercial literary market. I won't cloud you with fake humility. It's a good book, and I think you'll enjoy it. I wrote it for my kids, and if you enjoy the speech for my daughter, chances are you'd enjoy the book as well. Have a great week, and Shabbat Shalom.